Welcome to Small Findings. This is a podcast where I share things that I found out about. Some of the things are things you may already know, but are new to me, or some things may be new to both of us. This week, the findings are some facts about Beverly Cleary, some interesting stuff about the musician Sun Ra, some findings from other podcasts about Frederick Douglass and Adam Buxton, and finally, I'm joined by Fred Wu, an HVAC expert, to talk about what to look for in air purifiers. All right, on to the findings. I've started reading Beverly Cleary's biography, My Own Two Feet. If you don't remember Beverly Cleary or have never heard of her, she is a children's author I remember liking her books quite a bit as a child. Um, the Ralph books, like Runaway Ralph, The Mouse and the Motorcycle, uh, left a big impression on me. The Ramona books, uh, probably her most popular thing, were a big deal. They were very, they had a lot of emotional depth. And uh, I didn't really think much about her. Um, passed around, I don't know, fifth grade or so. But uh, my son has been reading those books lately, and they're pretty good. They hold up. Beverly Cleary has a fairly st- timeless style. You can tell that the Ramona books and the most mo- motorcycle, etc., were set in another time, but not all the time. I think this is because she's pretty good at focusing on interiority, what's going on in someone's head, how somebody feels, what somebody's thinking about somebody else. And that that tends to age better than interaction with specific objects. But there, there are obvious tells. There's things like people talking on wired phones, and as Kat pointed out, the strange habit of people washing their hair in kitchen sinks rather than just washing it in the shower. For a future finding, I should figure out why they did this back in the 80s and earlier. But the earliest Ramona stories are actually from the 50s. And I, I, don't, remem- I don't remember as a kid reading those uh, stories like Ramona the Pest and be able to tell that. So they span from the 50s to the 90s, and they they hold up pretty well. A similar thing happens with her biography. I've only read about three chapters so far, and for the most part, it's a story about a sheltered girl moving to a bigger place uh, and experiencing the world. Again, there's a lot about how she feels, what she's thinking, what she thinks other people are thinking. And that helps it not launch you back to as far as it actually is. I was shocked when she gets to college and 
a student comes, a fellow student comes to her house to study French with her, and he drives up in a Model T. That's because this takes place in the 30s, and she mentions the Great Depression. But once you, when you start reading, it doesn't really feel like it's from a hundred years ago. But it, but it actually was at least that part of the story. The the other things that are dated, uh, not in a bad way, um, they give you a sense of the time, are the differences between California and Oregon. California is this urbane place where uh, women know a lot about sex and uh, everybody is freewheeling and goes swimming at night and things like that. Whereas Oregon sounds like Kansas from The Wizard of Oz. These days, Oregon is a fairly hip place, and it's pretty well connected to everything else, thanks to the internet. Another thing I didn't know about was that some parts of California weren't hit, weren't hit as hard by the Great Depression as Oregon was. Beverly clearly is sent off by her parents from Oregon because they feel there's, there's no opportunities there, and they're really struggling to make ends meet. It could just be a small sample size thing, but the family she goes to live with is doing really well, uh, has multiple houses on their property. At one point, uh, they buy a small cottage and move it to their property uh, in order to rent it out. They have all these orange trees and avocado trees all over the place, and the father and mother of that family are, respectively, a gym teacher and a librarian. So they're living pretty well in the Great Depression on jobs that I'm not really sure would be able to support three dependents. Uh, I think, actually, it's four dependents in that family. So that's pretty striking. And this is, again, the Great Depression. In her own fiction... From much later, and 20 years later, in the 50s and onward, the, the other striking thing is that families are able to own single-family homes, even if they're humble, on jobs like working at a grocery store. And I forgot what Ramona's mother does, but she's, she's actually not always working. So her books are able to resonate in the, the present day, but they also provide a really good perspective of the past because I believe she lived to the age of 102 or more, and she started, she was born, I think, in the 20s, and she started writing books in the 50s all the way through the 90s. And I'll, I'll let you know more if I find anything else interesting in this biography. I've been reading a biography of Sun Ra. And if you read my blog, I apologize if this is stuff you've heard before from there. But... I find it interesting because I had no idea uh, about his early origins, and I'm only about a third of the way through, so 
I'm sure I'll find interesting stuff out about uh, later in his life. But mostly I, I know about him from later on when he was already an old person running the Sun Ra Orchestra. But he started out life as Herman Blount, and he was born in Alabama. He was regarded as a very bright kid who was good at school stuff. You may know uh, a lot of kids like that, those kids that they used to consider, quote, gifted and you know had few problems with school and were well-regarded and had, in some sense, fairly comfortable lives. But he was actually sheltered from white people, maybe accidentally, maybe on purpose, until he was about 14. So he didn't have much contact with white people uh, until then. But at that point, he was really shocked by how black people were treated in Alabama at that time. They're, they're not treated well right now, as we know from the Ahmad Arbery incident. But as you probably know, it was much, much worse back then. And he just could not believe that he had to take this. A few years after this, he started having visions and dreams about aliens. And he started to believe that what he was experiencing here on Earth wasn't the be-all, end-all. And there, there had to be much more to it. We're entering into opinion territory now, not fact territory, but I read this as a way to deal with the shock of intense racism. It felt as though his self-consciousness could not believe that this was real, and just decided, well then, something else must be real. There's a point at which his diary was read by some peers. They mocked him for believing in aliens, and this only seemed to entrench his belief. And I, I think that this gave him practice, putting aside for a moment the value of believing in aliens, I think it gave him practice at sticking to his convictions. He had a lot of musical ideas that were really out there, even even when he started. They were very visionary and alien, but he stood firm in saying, this is what I want to hear, this is what I want you to play. And he was able to keep, back in Alabama, a standing big band rehearsal, and this big band also got gigs. They d It's true, they did play a lot of covers, but at rehearsal, they would play his music. Not only was it strange, he would lecture his band on his philosophy, and they seemed to go along with it. They were excited to play something challenging, something new, and they knew that as strange as Sonny, as he was called at that time, was, he was very consistent. He would run his rehearsals every day. They would run really long, and you would always have a place to come and play as long as you were willing to play his stuff. Of course, he also really believed in improvisation, so musicians also got an outlet for themselves to express their own individuality within his framework. They also knew that he ran rehearsals 
pretty much 24 hours, so they would always have a place to play. His time in Alabama ended when he ran afoul of the draft. He did not want to fight in World War II, and he resisted, was thrown in jail, argued his own case in court, lost, and eventually just held on until he got out. After that, he was pretty angry at Alabama, and he moved to Chicago. In Chicago, he started out by leading a band and playing piano in Calumet City strip clubs. I don't know if I've mentioned it, but Sun Ra is a pretty avant-garde musician, and even when playing standards, uh, he made things kind of challenging. So it's kind of funny to think about playing stripper music. On one hand, is really challenging chords might be distracting to the audience. On the other hand, maybe they didn't care at all what was being played. So we have Fred today on Small Findings, and Hello. he sent me a very interesting email about air purifiers. Do you want to talk about why you've been looking into air purifiers? Well, first of all, my line of work is in air conditioning and ventilation, so this is sort of up my alley anyway. But specifically for us, uh, we live in the Pacific Northwest, and we have been getting wildfire smoke every summer, the last few summers, and you know, people in my house are especially sensitive to smoke, so we need the air to be clean, and so mm -hmm. there's not really a way to avoid it when it's out there. Uh, you know, you can just be inside, and so air purifiers are a way of cleaning the air inside so that we can be more comfortable. Um, yeah. So you may remember or have seen the really apocalyptic-looking images from the West Coast <laughs> uh, last year. Uh, so up here, we didn't get it quite as bad. Like, it wasn't super orange in the middle of the day, but uh, it was, you know, pretty notable for a couple weeks. So we have a couple of air purifiers, and um, and more disclosure, my uncle is a some sort of product or sales rep for a company that sells air purifiers, so I got a little bit of inside information there as well. So you got these during the summer. Mm -hmm. Are the problems mostly over with uh, the extreme smoky air at this yeah, point? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, when the smoke comes, it's usually just a couple of weeks. Um, so last year it was like September 10th through the 21st, so 11, 11-ish days, something like that. Um, and then all, most of the, you know, all the rest of the year is not a problem. It's just during that one uncomfortable time, it's it's an issue. Um, and it it especially becomes, or the smoke typically corresponds with the hottest part of the year. So yeah. it's, you know, multiple ways of uncomfortable. You're, you're inside, you're too hot, you can't open the windows, you can't go outside to, you know, get any fresh air because there is no fresh air. Wow. Um, and it's, and I was thinking about uh, how it felt, and it was a little bit like the pandemic as a whole, but compressed down even more. <laughs> like with the, the pandemic. pandemic. Yeah. Exactly. <clears throat> with the pandemic, you, you're not going places where people are to avoid breathing, you know, the virus. Right. But with the smoke, you can't even go outside because you don't want to breathe the smoke. So, you know, everything kind of closes in. Everything is very flat and gray 
the sky looks the exact same, whether it's 8 o'clock in the morning or 3 in the afternoon. It's, it's almost a bit disorienting after a while. Yeah, the only way you could, I mean, if you're good at digging, you'd go further underground, I guess. <laughs> uh, but that's 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 not an option so yeah i guess that's why you got the air purifiers and yeah i you know i've i bought uh some air purifiers like several years ago like four years ago and mm-hmm. and like yeah i i bought based on i just took the face value claim right where like on the website they usually say this is good for this size room exactly yeah how did how did you go about digging in and, and finding something yeah, that's, that's how I went about it as well. And so the uncle that I had mentioned, um, he gave me an air purifier as a sample. Um, and it's a pretty good one. It's He would say it's the best one because, of course, he would. And then I sent him a, a text, you know, when I was at a, a store. And I said, hey, this other one kind of looks like the one you sent me. Um, and it's kind of rated for about the same amount of room. And my uncle said, well, you don't look at the room rating because that's not really a thing that's Ah. all marketing there is actually a number that you should be looking for and it's called the clean air delivery rate or cadr he said you need to compare that between air purifiers to really be able to compare which one is as effective as the other so that sent me down sort of a a path of research to understand what exactly this is because again this is sort of my line of work so i was like well that's interesting i can understand this i remember talking to you online before and yeah i think you talked a little bit about working on hvac systems does Mm -hmm. does air purification come into the the more industrial type stuff that i think you do is that has that come up before or yeah uh, not not in the same way so to jump ahead a little bit, um, in commercial and industrial spaces, they are concerned with air quality, very highly concerned. But generally, the way to improve air quality is to bring in more outside air. So basically, you've got a, a fan that might be pulling in air from the outside, and it you know, blows that air into your space. So there may be some recirculation of the air, or there may be a lot of recirculation of the air, air where you take it from the space and run it through some filters and heating coils and cooling coils to create the conditions that you want in that space. But generally, if you want more pure or more high quality air, is you get the air from outside. But but obviously that doesn't work if, if the air quality outside is not good. Of course, right. Yeah. <laughs> okay, and that's, that's where things like this come into play. Um, yeah. Okay. And so, so using the CADR, wait, what is it? What is that set for? Again? Yeah, CADR. It's Clean Air Delivery Rate, and the number indicates the volume of air, the volume rate of pure air that filter will deliver. So, if it has a CADR of two hundred, for example, and it's cubic feet per minute, that means that it will output the equivalent of two hundred cubic feet per minute of filtered air. And kind of the nuance there is that the filter may not be 100% effective, which is why I say equivalent. So it might actually move like 300 cubic feet of air, but only filter it like 66% to sort of multiply those together and get 200. So when I think manufacturers are designing their equipment, they have a choice of a trade-off of 
a highly effective filter and a lower air movement rate, maybe a smaller fan, or a bigger fan and a less effective filter. And so that's where the engineering sort of decision-making or trade-offs come in based on that particular manufacturer's priorities. And have you found, I don't know if you remember, but when you, once you knew about this, were you finding correlations between the marketing claims about good for a thousand square foot room and the uh, CADR? Or, or was that often unrelated? Yeah, that also was interesting to find. So the, um, the standard that the uh, AHAM, the Association of Appliance Manufacturers, publishes is that the ratio between CADR and the square footage of the room that you're putting it in should be about two-thirds. So back to that CADR rating of 200 that I mentioned, if you were if you had a 300 square foot room, by their standards, 200 CADR air purifier would be appropriate for that. So I looked at a bunch of different ones and I found that most of them do conform to that. The ratio is actually 0.645. So the, a particular one that I have has a CADR rating of 328 and it's advertised for 508 square feet. So that's a ratio of 0.645. Pretty good. But another one, which I found on a very large website, had a CADR of 300, so less than the one I mentioned, and it was advertised for being good for 1,100 square feet. Oh. So, yeah, so the ratio there was way off. It's huh. 0.27, um, which itself is peculiar. But the other interesting thing was that air purifier cost twice as much. Oh. So without, if you were just looking at the square footage and the price, you would think, well, Twice as much cost, twice as much square footage, sounds about right. But in fact, it's actually a smaller capacity for twice as much money that's a little bit deceptively advertised. It's just one of those caveat mTOR situations where they are just like, well, we can charge this. This exactly. second market will bear, so we will. Yeah. Okay. Well, that that is that is a good... That, that is super useful then to be able to like cut through that. Well, that's awesome. All right. Well, you know, thanks for, thanks for sharing this finding. Sometimes I cannot come up with like really concrete ones like this. Mm -hmm. So it's nice to ha have one in there, courtesy of you. Yeah. Um, thank you for the opportunity. I'd like to mention some other podcast episodes you should listen to in a way you could think of it as external findings. First, there is the Talking Politics History of Ideas episode about Frederick Douglass on slavery. I'll link it in the show notes. I have read I've read the first of Frederick Douglass's biographies. That episode is about his second one, and I'm not entirely sure what all of the differences are, but a lot of what I took away from the first one was just how difficult it was to be a slave, and just how difficult it was to escape, and how difficult it was to gather information, to learn how to read uh, things that uh, Frederick Douglass had to work really hard to do. Now, I'm not sure if I took that away because of my own 
personal perspective and things I'm drawn to, or if because it's really different from the second one. But the second one seems to make a really big deal about really carefully discussing slavery. As in, Frederick Douglass made sure that he never argued against slavery because that would legitimize slavery. If he was to say, oh, I'll have a debate with you, slave owner, about how slavery is bad. He he felt that that was ridiculous and it just made things worse. And he made sure that he never, ever got into that kind of situation. So I will have to read the second biography. And uh, you probably should too, or at least listen to that podcast episode. Another podcast episode I learned something from is the Tape Notes episode with Adam Buxton. Tape Notes is a podcast that talks about music production, and Adam Buxton is a podcaster who is also a comedian. He and his uh, his partner, his comedy partner, Joe Buxton, uh, ran a show called Adam and Joe on TV, and then also on the radio, which I find I found really funny. Um, and then when he did, went on to do his show on his own, he did a more serious interview show, which first I admit I didn't really like, <laughs> because not because it wasn't good, but because I, I wanted Adam and Joe-style humor. But it's actually really good, and I, I listened to it. But uh, Adam Buxton is a prolific producer of jingles that that are honestly very funny. It's very easy for a jingle to not be funny if you've ever listened to terrestrial radio and things like that. But I did wonder how they're made. I know he mentioned GarageBand, but in that episode, he brings up how most of the music, he doesn't make any music via musical instruments. They're all loops or found tapes and the things that he finds, and he'll just like drag them together in garage band, and then he'll sing over them. The thing is, uh, if you've ever made a piece of music, uh, once once you have th- some riffs, that doesn't mean that's that's all there is to the song. There's there is a lot more arranging and scrutinizing and painful stuff that that even even Adam Buxton is unable to avoid uh, when making these jingles, which often last you know ten seconds to thirty seconds or something like that. So it's like a really interesting look into the craft of making jingles with pre-made music, which is a lot harder than you think. <laughs> Well, that is it for this episode's findings. A little production note here. I sort of don't like when I hear somebody apologize for not making enough podcast episodes or not posting their blog, if if you're familiar with blogs. But I do want to explain why there hasn't been an episode in a while. A lot of it is a consequence of prioritization. Uh, 
So I built myself some app where it's kind of a, a Trello sort of thing, except um, I create a bunch of cards that sit on various planes and I arrange them. And the TLDR of this is I put in order what I think is important to do. And what happens is the podcast segments, like I, I'll have cards that say something like, write something podcast segment. And it will never, ever be placed within like the first three weeks of various cards. So I thought about this. And whenever I look at, is this card more important than writing this podcast segment? The answer is yes. But that contradicts my answer to the question, do I think this podcast is worth maintaining? The answer to that is yes. I do think it's worth keeping up this podcast. I just haven't figured out a way around it. Well, today, I am mostly recumbent because I had my second COVID vaccine dose yesterday. And while I don't have any kind of like really heavy discomfort, I'm pretty tired. I um, earlier was trying to finish up a song and one of the tasks I had to do for that was to drag a bunch of files that I had sent to myself via Slack onto my iPad. And I got through like 10 of them and I just kind of laid down after that. So while laying down here, uh, it occurred to me, I think I could just record these segments without writing them. The reason I write them out in advance, like you'll notice like the first couple episodes of Small Findings were done extemporaneously. And I forget whether, I think some of them I just kind of let run, even though I found them hard to listen to. And then after that, I started editing them heavily so that they were a bit of a smoother listen with a lot of disfluencies like um, uh, etc. removed. If I write it out in advance, then that doesn't happen. The problem is, writing things out in advance is kind of a lot of work. So, we can't all have everything we want. So this is what I'm going to do. I have been recording most of these segments, except for the interview with Fred, while lying down and making things up as I go. To cut down on the amount of disfluencies to cut out. Yep. Last time on so we can talk. Okay, what are we talking about? All right, sorry about that. So what I'm saying is, instead, I'm not going to pre-write these. But I am going to, I figured out I can just pause the recording once in a while if I can't think of what to say next. And that will cut down on the ums, the uhs, and the other disfluencies. And then I will just have my make file, slap the podcast together, then I'll upload it. So there might not be as much depth or polish in the podcast, but I think it's better than no podcast. Well, if you have any findings to share... Uh, email me over at 
Wait, I forgot the email address. Sorry. Smallfindings at fastmail.com. All right. See you next time. Thank <laughs> you.